This audio production was made in collaboration with Audible Anarchist. Part 4 The commune consists of all workers living in the same locality. Disregarding very few exceptions, the typical commune can be defined as the local federation of groups of producers. This local federation or commune is organized to provide certain services which are not within the exclusive jurisdiction or capacity of any particular corporation, industrial unit, but which consists all of them, and for which for this reason are called public services. The communal public services can be enumerated as follows. A. Public works, housing and construction. All houses are property of the commune. The revolution made Everyone continues for the time being to live in the same quarters occupied by him before the revolution, except for families which had been forced to live in very dilapidated or overcrowded dwellings. Such families will be immediately relocated at the expense of the commune in vacant apartments formerly occupied or owned by the rich. The, new, the construction of new houses containing healthy, spacious rooms Replacing the miserable slums of the old ghettos will be one of the first needs of the new society. The commune will immediately begin the construction in a way that will not only furnish work for the corporations of masons, carpenters, iron workers, tilers, roofers, etc., but will also provide useful work for the masses of people who, having no trade, lived in idleness before the revolution. They would be employed as laborers in the immense construction and road building and paving projects, which will then be initiated everywhere, especially in the cities. The new housing will be constructed at the expense of the commune, which means that in exchange for the work done by the various building corporations, these corporations will receive from the commune vouchers, enabling them to acquire all commodities necessary for the decent maintenance and the well-being of their members. And since the new housing has been constructed at public expense, this system will enable and require free housing to be available for all. Free housing might well cause serious disputes because the people living in bad housing will compete with each other for the new accommodations. But we think that this would be a mistake to fear serious friction and for the following reasons. First, we must concede that the desire for new and better housing is legitimate and just command, demand, and that this just demand will stimulate the building workers to make even greater efforts to speed construction of new housing. But while awaiting new construction, people will have to be patient and do the best they can with existing facilities. The commune will, as we have said, attend to the most pressing needs of the poorest families, relocating them in the vast palaces of the rich. And as to the rest of the people, we believe that revolutionary enthusiasm will stimulate and inspire them with the spirit of generosity and self-sacrifice, and that they will be glad to endure for a little longer the discomforts of poor housing. Nor will they be inclined to quarrel with a neighbor who happens to have gotten a new apartment a little sooner. In a reasonably short time, thanks to the prodigious efforts of the building workers, powerfully stimulated by the demand for new housing, there will be plenty of housing for all, and everyone will be sure to find satisfactory accommodations. All of this may seem fantastic to those whose vision goes no further than the horizon of bourgeois society. These measures are, on the contrary, so simple and practical that it will be humanly impossible for things to go otherwise. Will the legions of masons and other building workers be permanently and incessantly occupied with the construction of new housing worthy of a civilized society? 
Will it take many years of incessant labor to supply everyone with good housing? No, it will take short time. And when they have finished the main work, will they fold their arms and do nothing? No, they will continue to work at a slower pace, remodeling existing housing, and little by little the old somber quarters, the crooked filthy streets, the miserable houses and alleyways that now infest our cities will disappear and will be replaced by mansions where the workers can live like human beings. B. Exchange In the new society, there will no longer be communes in the sense that this word is understood today as mere political geographical entities. Every commune will establish a bank of exchange, whose mechanics we will explain as clearly as possible. The workers' association, as well as the individual producers and the remaining privately owned portions of production, will deposit their unconsumed commodities in the facilities provided by the bank of exchange. The value of the commodities having been established and advanced by a contractual agreement between the regional cooperative federations and the various communes will also furnish statistics to the bank of exchange. The bank of exchange will remit to the producers negotiable vouchers representing the value of their products. These vouchers will be accepted throughout the territory included in the Federation of Communes. Goods of prime necessity, i.e. those essential to life and health, will be transported to the various communal markets which, pending new construction, will use the old stores and warehouses of the former merchants. Some of the markets will distribute foodstuffs, others clothes, others household goods, etc. Goods destined for export will remain in the general warehouses until called for by the communes. Among the commodities deposited in the facilities of the Bank of Exchange will be the goods for the consumption by the commune itself, such as food, lumber, clothes, etc., and goods to be exchanged for those produced by other communes. At this point, we anticipate an objection. We will probably be asked, the Bank of Exchange in each commune will re- Commit to the producers by means of vouchers and the value of their products before being sure that they are in demand. And if these products are not in demand and pile up unused, what will be the position of the bank of exchange? Will it not risk losses or even ruin? And in this kind of operation, is there not always the risk that the vouchers will be overdrawn? We reply that the bank of exchange makes sure in advance that these products are in demand and therefore risks nothing by immediately issuing payment vouchers to the producers. There will be, of course, certain categories of workers engaged in the construction or manufacture of immovable goods, goods which cannot be transported to the repositories of the Bank of Exchange, for example, buildings. In such cases, the Bank of Exchange will serve as an intermediary. The workers will register the property with the Bank of Exchange. The value of the property will be agreed upon in advance, and the bank will deliver the value in existing in-exchange vouchers. The same procedure will be followed in the dealing with the various workers employed by the administrative services of the communes, their work resulting not in the manufactured products, but in services rendered. These services will have to be priced in advance, and the bank of exchange will pay their value in vouchers. The Bank of Exchange will not only receive products belonging to the workers of the commune, it will correspond with other communes and arrange to procure goods which the commune is obliged to get from outside sources, such as certain foodstuffs, fuels, manufactured products, etc. These outside products will be featured side by side with local goods. 
The consumers will pay for the commodities in the various markets with vouchers of different denominations, and all goods will be informally priced. It is evident from our description that the operations of the Bank of Exchange do not differ essentially from the usual commercial procedures. These operations are nothing are in effect nothing but buying and selling. The bank buys from the producers and sells to the consumers. But what we think that after a certain length of time, the functions of the bank of exchange will be reduced without inconvenience, and that a new system will gradually replace the old system. Exchange, in the tip- traditional sense, will give way to distribution, pure and simple. What do we mean by this? As long as a product is in short supply, it will, to a certain extent, have to be rationed. And the easiest way to do this would be to sell these scarce products at a price so high that only the people who really need them would be willing to buy them. But when the prodigious growth of production, which will not fail to take place when work is rationally organized, produces an oversupply of this or that product, it will not be necessary to ration consumption. The practice of selling, which was adopted as a sort of deterrent to immoderate consumption, will be abolished. The communal banks will no longer sell commodities that will distribute them in accordance with the needs of the consumers. The replacement of exchange by distribution will first, and in a comparatively short time, be applied to the articles of prime necessity, for the workers will concentrate all their efforts to produce these necessities in abundance. Other commodities, formerly scarce and today considered luxuries, will in a reasonable length of time be produced in great quantity, and will no longer be rationed. On the other hand, rare and useful baubles such as pearls, diamonds, certain precious metals, etc. will cease to have value attributed to them by public opinion and will be used by research by scientific associations as components of certain tools, e.g. industrial diamonds, or displayed as curios in museums of natural history. C. Food Supply The question of food supply is sort of postscript to our discussion of exchange. What we said about the organization of the bank of exchange in general applies to all products, including foodstuffs. However, we think it useful to add in a special section a more detailed account of the measures dealing with the distribution of the principal foods products. At present, the bake shops, meat stores, wine and liquor shops, imported food stores, etc. are all surrendered to private industry and the speculators in these, by all kinds of fraud, enrich themselves at the expense of the consumers. The new society must immediately try to correct this situation by placing under the communal public service the distribution of all of the most essential foodstuffs. This must be borne in mind. We we do not simply mean to imply that the commune will take possession of certain branches of production. No. Production, in the true sense, will remain in the hands of the associations of producers, But, for example, what is involved in the production of bread? Nothing beyond growing the wheat. The farmer sows and rapes the grain and transports it to the warehouses of the bank of exchange. His function as producer ends at this point. Grinding grain into flour or changing flour into bread is not production. It is work similar to that performed by various employees in the communal markets. Work destined to put a food product, bread, at the disposal of the consumer. The same goes for meat, etc. Thus viewed, it is only logical that the processing and distribution of foodstuffs, baking, slaughtering, winemaking, etc., should be performed by the commune. Thus wheat from the warehouses of the commune will be ground into flour in the communal flour mill, which will be shared 
with several communes. The flour will be transformed into bread in the communal bakeries and delivered to the consumers in the communal markets. It will be the same for the meats. The animals will be slaughtered in the communal slaughterhouses and cut up in the communal butcher shops. Wine will be preserved in the communal wine cellars and bottled and distributed by special employees. Finally, all other perishable food commodities will be kept in communal warehouses and kept in glass enclosures in the communal markets. Above all, immediate efforts must be made to institute the free distribution of certain foodstuffs, such as bread, meat, wine, dairy products, etc. When abundant food is available and free for all, civilization in general will have taken a giant step forward. D. Statistics The main function of the Communal Statistical Commission will be to gather and clarify all statistical information pertaining to the commune. The various corporations of associations of producers will constantly keep up-to-date records of membership and changes in personnel so that it will be possible to know instantly the number of employees in certain branches of production. The Bank of Exchange will provide the Statistical Commission with the most complete figures and all other relevant facts on the production and consumption of goods. By means of statistics gathered from all the communes in a region, it will be possible to scientifically balance production and consumption. In line with these statistics, it will also be possible to add more help in industries where production is insufficient and reduce the number of men when there is a surplus of production. Statistics will also make it easy to fit working hours to the productive needs of society. It will be equally possible to estimate, not perfectly, but enough for practical purposes, the relative value of labor time involved in various products, which will serve as the criteria for prices of the bank of exchange. But this is not all. The Statistical Commission will be able to perform some of the functions that are today exercised by the civil state, for example, recording births and deaths. We do not include marriage because in a free society, the voluntary union of a man and woman will no longer be an official but a purely personal matter, not subject to a requiring public sanction. There are many other uses for statistics in relation to diseases, weather phenomena, in short, all facts which regularly gathered and classified can serve as a guide to the development of science and learning in general. E. Hygiene. Under the general heading hygiene, we have assembled the various public services which are indispensable to the maintenance of the public health. First, of course, are medical services, which will be free, to free of charge to all inhabitants of the commune. The doctors will not be like capitalists trying to extract the greatest possible profits from their unfortunate patients. They will be employed by the commune and expected to treat all who need their services. But medical treatment is only the curative side of the science of healthcare. It is not enough to treat the sick. It is also necessary to prevent disease. This is the true function of hygiene. F. Security. This service embraces the necessary measures to guarantee all the inhabitants of the commune the security of their person and their protection of their homes, their possessions, etc. against deprivation and accidents like fires, floods, etc. There will probably be very little brigandage and robbery in a society where each live, where each lives in full freedom to enjoy the fruits of their labor, and where almost all of their needs will be abundantly fulfilled. Material well-being, as well as the intellectual and moral progress, which are products of a truly 
humane education available to all will eliminate crimes, will eliminate, will almost eliminate crimes due to F, security. This service embraces the necessary measures to guarantee to all inhabitants of the commune the security of their person and the protection of their homes, their possessions, etc., against deprivation and accidents, fire, floods, etc. There will probably be very little brigandage and robbery in a society where each lives in the full freedom to enjoy the fruits of his labor and where almost all his needs will be abundantly fulfilled. Material well-being, as well as the intellectual and moral progress, which are the products of a truly humane education available to all, will eliminate crimes due to perversion, brutality, and other infirmites. It will nevertheless still be necessary to take precautions for the security of persons. This service, which can be called, if the phrase has not too bad a connotation, the communal police, will not be entrusted as today to a special official body. All able-bodied inhabitants will be called upon to take turns in the security measures instituted by the commune. It will doubtless be asked how those committing murder and other violent crimes will be treated in the new equalization society. Obviously, society cannot, on the pretext of respect for individual rights and the negation of authority, permit a murderer to run loose or wait for a friend of the victim to avenge him. The murderer will have to be deprived of his liberty and confined to a special house until he can without, be da without danger be returned to society. How is the criminal to be treated during his confinement, and according to what principles should his term be fixed? These are delicate questions on which opinions will, will vary widely. We must learn from experience, but this much we already know, that thanks to the beneficent effects of education, see below, crimes will be rare. Criminals being an exception, they will be treated like the sick and deranged. The problem of crime, which today gives so many jobs to judges, jailers, and police, will lose its social importance and simply be a chapter in medical history. G. Education. The first point to be considered is the question of child support, food, clothes, toys, etc. Today, parents not only support their children, but also supervise their education. This is a custom based on a false principle, a principle that regards the child as the personal property of the parents. The child belongs to no one. He belongs only to himself. During the period where he is unable to protect himself and is thereby exposed to exploitation, it is society that must protect him and guarantee his free development. It is also society that must support him and supervise his education. In supporting him and paying for his education, society is only making an advance loan, which the child will repay when he becomes an adult producer. It is society and not the parents who will be responsible for the upkeep of the child. The, this principle, once established, we believe that we should abstain from specifying the exact manner in which this principle should be applied. To do otherwise would risk trying to achieve a utopia. Therefore, the application must be free to experiment, and we must await the lessons of practical experience. We say only that vis-a-vis -vis the child, society is represented by the commune, and that each commune will have to determine what would be best for the upbringing of the child. Here, they would have life in common, and they would leave children in the care of their mother, at least up to a certain age, etc. But this is only one aspect of the problem. 
The commune feeds, clothes, and lodges the children. But who will teach them? Who will develop their best characteristics and train them as producers? According to what plan and principles will their education be conducted? To these questions we reply, the education of children must be integrated, that is, it must at the same time develop both physical and mental faculties and make the child into a whole man. This education must not be entrusted solely to a specialized caste of teachers. All those who know a science, an art, a craft should be called upon to teach. We must not distinguish two stages in the education of children. We must distinguish two stages in the development of the education of children. The first stage, where the child of five or six is not yet old enough to study science, and where the emphasis is on the development of the physical faculties, and a second stage, where children 12 to 16 years of age would be introduced to the various divisions of human knowledge, while at the same time learning one or more crafts or trades through practice. The first stage, as just mentioned, will be devoted to the development of physical faculties, the strengthening the body and exercising the senses. Today, the powers of hearing, seeing, and manual dexterity are incompletely and haphazardly developed. A rational education, on the contrary, will, by special systemic exercises, develop these faculties to the highest possible degree. And as to hands, instead of making children only right-handed, attempts will be made to render children equally proficient in the use of the left hand. And while the senses are developed and the bodily vigor is enhanced by intelligent gymnastic exercises, the culture of the mind will begin, but in a spontaneous manner. The child when naturally and unconsciously absorb a store of scientific knowledge. Personal observation, practical experience, conversations between children or with persons charged with teaching, these will be the only form of instruction children will receive during this first period. No longer will there be schools arbitrarily governed by a pedagogue where the children will wait impatiently for the moment of their deliverance when they can enjoy a little freedom outside. In their gatherings, the children will be entirely free. They will organize their own games, their talks, systemize their own work, arbitrate disputes, etc. They will then easily become accustomed to public life, to responsibility, to mutual trust and aid. The teacher whom they have themselves chosen to give them a lesson will no longer be a detested tyrant, but a friend to whom they will listen with pleasure. During the second stage, the children, being ages 12 to 16, will successively study in a methodical manner the principal branches of human knowledge. They will not be taught by professional teachers, but by lay teachers of this or that science, who are also part-time annual workers. And each branch of knowledge will be taught not by one, but many men, all from the commune, who have both the knowledge and the desire to teach. In addition, good books on the subject studied will be read together, and intelligent discussion will follow, thereby lessening the importance attached to the personality of the teacher. While the child is developing his body and learning the sciences, he will begin apprenticeship as a producer. In the first stage of his education, the need to repair or modify toys will introduce the child to the use of simple tools. During the second stage, he will visit factories, and stimulated by his liking for one or more trades, he will finally choose the trade in which he will specialize. The apprentices will be taught by men who are themselves working in the factories, 
and thus in this practical education will be supplemented by lessons dealing with theory. In this way, by the time a young man reaches the age of 16 or 17, he will have been introduced to the range of human knowledge, learned to trade, and chosen the discipline he likes best. Thus, he will be in a position to reimburse society for the expenses involved in his education, not in money, but by useful work and respect for the rights of his human beings. Not in money, but by useful work and respect for the rights of his fellow human beings. In conclusion, we should make a few remarks on the relationship between the child and his family. There are people who assert that the program of placing the child in the custody of society means the destruction of the family. This doctrine is devoid of sense. As long as the concurrence of two individuals of different sexes is necessary for procreation, as long as there are fathers and mothers, the natural connection between the parents and the child can never be obliterated by social relations. Only the character of this connection will be modified. In antiquity, the father was the absolute master of the child. He had the power of life and death over him. In modern times, paternal authority has been subject to certain restrictions. What then could be more natural than that a free egalitarian society should obliterate what still remains of this authority and replace it with relations of simple affection? We do not claim that the child should be treated as an adult, that all his caprices should be respected, that when his childish will stubbornly flout the elementary rules of science and common sense, we should avoid making him feel that he is wrong. We say, on the contrary, that the child must be trained and guided, but that the direction of his first years must not be exclusively exercised by his parents, who are all too often incompetent and who generally abuse their authority. The aim of education is to develop the latent capacities of the child to the fullest extent and enable him to take care of himself as quickly as possible. It is painfully evident that authoritarianism is incompatible with an enlightened system of education. If the relations of the father to son are no longer those of master to slave, but of teacher to student, of an older to a much younger friend, do you think that the reciprocal affection of parents to children would thereby be impaired? On the contrary, when intimate relations of these sorts cease, do not the discord so characteristics of modern families begin? Is not the family disintegrating into bitter frictions largely because of the tyranny exercised by parents over their children? No one can therefore justify claim that a free and regenerated society will destroy the family. In such a society, the father, the mother, and the children will learn to love and respect their natural rights. At the same time, their love will be enriched as it transcends the narrow limits of family affection, thereby achieving a wider and nobler love, the love of the great human family. This has been a production of Audible Anarchist. You can find more Audible Anarchist on YouTube.